Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around before the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, let's celebrate God's Word. Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, before we jump in and read that, just a little bit of a recap. Last week we found John, and if you're new to us, new to our church, we are going through the book of Revelation and just talking about uh, the revelation of Jesus. The entire book of Revelation is about revealing who Jesus is. Uh, we often think about it in terms of revealing the future, and in some case that's true, but primarily we're talking about Jesus through this, and we're looking to see who is Jesus, how does he reveal himself, and what does he want us to know about him. Last week we found John in God's throne room being shown a vision of the first judgments of God against the world, against sin. And, uh, and John saw God on his throne, and God in his right hand was holding a scroll with seven seals on it. And the Bible said, John records for us that he looked and there was no one in heaven or on earth that was worthy to open the scroll that God held. And it caused John to weep. He was broken over that fact because it meant that justice would not come against sin to the earth. And yet one of the creatures around the throne told John, hey, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll. And so John said, then I turned and I looked and I didn't see a lion like I anticipated. What did John see? saw a lamb. He said, and it looked as if it had been slain. The lamb was Jesus. And John said, Jesus was able to go and take the scroll from God's right hand and begin to open the seals. And so we talked about the first four seal judgments that come upon the earth uh, and upon humanity. And so when we talked about that last week, these four seals, these first four seals are often described as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's how we talk about it, how we hear it in our culture. The reason for that is because every time a seal would be opened, a rider on a horse would go forward. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a literal horse that's going to come out of heaven and throw plagues on the earth. It just means that John is describing it this way, that there is a power and authority from God that's being given on the earth to bring judgments to the world. And so so these judgments, these first four seals, I believe, are the ongoing judgments against humanity over the course of history, which God has used to show how broken our world is and how much of a need we have for a Savior. And as John opens, or Jesus opens these seals, those seals that we saw him open represented uh, these four different things. The horses represented human conquest through war, the removal of peace from the earth, injustice and famine, and then finally death. And we saw that a third of the world, or fourth of the world, excuse me, uh, dies in the course of the judgments of God 
over history. And so today, we see Jesus open the final seals on the scroll. And we're going to witness what takes place both in heaven and on earth uh, as John does this. And so um, we're also going to see the most important question for humanity asked and answered in the book of Revelation today. And so if you're not familiar with this book or if this is a book that scares you a little bit, uh, I can simply just tell you this. We don't know and understand fully everything that's here. We just don't. I'm not going to try to be dogmatic in my approach to tell you everything. This is what I believe and you should believe this too. I'm just going to tell you the way I interpret it, the way I see things. And then God will ultimately unveil these things in human history. But today we're going to see this important question asked and answered that all of us have to come around at some point in time in our life. And so with that kind of being the background, I want us to get into this fifth seal that's on the scroll that Jesus holds in his hand. And so what John has seen in this vision has occurred on earth so far. The fifth seal, all of the four seals have happened on earth. The fifth seal is going to shift to heaven. And so if you're taking notes, if you like to write things down, either on your bulletin or on the app, follow along and fill in some blanks. Here's the first thing you're going to see. The fifth seal represents martyrs of the Christian faith. It represents people who give their life in service to Jesus that they're willing to go all in for Jesus to the point of death. And so I want you to read this with me. Revelation chapter 6, starting verse 9. John said, When he, Jesus, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And so John will later tell us in the book of Revelation that there's no temple in heaven. Jesus is the temple. God is the temple. There's no need for a temple. We are in the presence of God. And yet, he says, but I looked and under the altar, there are people. There are the souls of those who have been murdered. So there's an altar, and I believe that this altar, because of what we see going on, represents a unification of both sacrifice and prayer. We've talked in last week in the study that, that there are the prayers of the saints that go up, and oftentimes we think of our prayers for justice on the earth not being answered, and yet Jesus shows us that the angels around the throne of God hold golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And at the right time, God will pour out those prayers. He will pour out those bowls to bring judgment against the earth. And so there's prayer that's taking place, but now there's also sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of people who are willing to walk in step with Jesus to the very end and give their life for him as it's needed. And so under the altar, John sees the souls of those who have been slain. But I want you to look at why they were slain. He says, because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And so as our world continues to spiral out of control, and we see this more and more happening more and more frequently all over the globe, even here in our country, there will be more and more who are persecuted for our stance on the truth of Scripture. That's just what's going to continue to happen. It's happening more and more frequently here in the United States. It happens all over the world. There are people every day who are giving their life for their belief in God's word and for the testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you do some studying right now, you'll find that in the 20th century, there were more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries before that combined. People are coming against the reality of Jesus. 
They are coming against Christians, those of us who follow in his ways. They are coming against those of us who follow the teachings and the practices of the Bible. And there will be more and more persecution, more and more martyrs as time continues to go on. And so we see that. But not only is the word of God what causes people uh, to have People see uh, they rail against God's teaching. They rail against absolute truth. They rail against the things that we hold fast and believe as the way that God desires for life to be lived out. And so any time we come against or people come against us in that and we stand true to our faith, we're going to be persecuted for that. But it's not just our belief in the word of God. The second thing that we see is that they were persecuted and they were martyred because of their witness and testimony that they give about Jesus. John says those who were found under the throne or under the altar, rather, of the Lord, maintained their testimony. He says these were people who maintained their testimony that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and there's no way to get to heaven unless you come through Jesus. They maintained that reality until the very end, even if it cost them their life to believe that way, even if it cost them everything to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He is the way that we come into relationship with the Father and have eternity with heaven. And so when we think about this, we think about Christians all around the globe, all of us in every age, in every culture, are called to be obedient to Jesus, even to the point of death. And so we have to ask ourselves, as the end draws near and resistance to Jesus continues to rise, we have to ask ourselves, are we all in? You have to ask yourself, am I all in? Do I believe in Jesus and will I live for Jesus regardless of what it costs me? Or do I practice this kind of cultural Christianity where the only reason that I do this church thing is because this is kind of what's been, been taught to me in my life. This is what we do. Day we show up at church. I have this Jesus in my life because somebody at one point in time told me that I needed to pray and invite Jesus into my life so I don't go to hell when I die. That's a false impression of what Christianity is supposed to be about. Christianity is not a get out of hell free card. Christianity is a call to lifelong obedience to the point of death, if it requires it, to follow after the heart of our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. And we have to decide here and now, before things get crazy, crazier, am I all in? Am I all in? Would I give up everything? Would I give my life for Jesus if it required of me? Am I all in? And so that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. John paints this picture of people who have given their life for Christ. And here's what I can promise you. No matter what happens to you in this life, no matter how you die in this life, whether it's tragically in a car accident or whether it's some other way or whether someone chops your head off because you believe in Jesus. That's graphic, but that's going to happen. We're going to see that unfold as Revelation continues to play out. Regardless of how you give your life, what's beautiful is that when we die, because of our faith in Christ, we wake up with him forever in eternity. So to die in this world, no matter how tragic, no matter how painful, no matter how sudden, is just an entrance into the life to come. In the first century, Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, was one of the most famous early martyrs. Ignatius may have been discipled by John, who writes the book of Revelation. He certainly knew John and was part of his ministry. But in AD 110, Ignatius was taken to Rome to be thrown to the wild beast in the Colosseum. 
He knew he was going there for the express purpose to die because of his testimony in following Christ. On his way there, Ignatius would write letters to the, to the churches in Asia Minor. The same churches and more that we studied in the beginning of the book of Revelation. These churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches we talked about and others, Ignatius wrote letters to them. And here's what he said on his way to martyrdom. He said, may I have the pleasure of the wild beasts that have been prepared for me. Fire and cross and battles with wild beasts, mutilation, mangling, wrenching of bones, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Let these come upon me. Only let me reach Jesus Christ. And what a powerful testimony, right? Ignatius said, you can do your worst to me on this earth. All it does is it gives me entry to Jesus. It puts me before his throne. It draws me into a relationship with him that's deeper than anything I know on this earth. Because when I'm with him, the veil is, is displaced. The, the things that we talk about, and Paul writes and says, what we see now dimly in a mirror, then we'll see face to face, we'll see clearly. Ignatius said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to me. Just let me be with Jesus. And if that's what it takes for me to get to Jesus, then bring it on. And I think that's the attitude that we as Christians are going to have to have and should have is that regardless of what we face in this life, just get me to Jesus. Let me be with him. Let me know him. Let me walk with him. Church, we've enjoyed the ability to practice our faith openly for the most part without persecution in this country. We've been blessed by that. We've been harbored in a lot of ways because of our political system and because of our just, our, um, uh, the things that have allowed us to worship in that way, the freedoms that we have, the liberties that we have religiously. But we need to be committed to know that when and if the tide changes here in our country, we need to commit beforehand to stand with Jesus no matter the cost. That just because we have the freedom to show up and worship in this place today without hostility, without persecution, without ridicule, or without tor torment, if that changes, will we still follow Jesus? Is he still the most important thing to us? Or are we just playing games? We're only doing it because it's culturally relevant, because it's acceptable. Where do you stand when it comes to your faith in Jesus? I want you to look back at the text with me. And again, notice something that the martyrs ask Jesus. They're under the altar and they have a question for him. In verse 10, it says, They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and you avenge our blood? And so these martyrs recognize Jesus as worthy to judge the world. They say, You're sovereign. You have control over everything. You're in charge of it all. You're holy. You're true. You should be able to do what is right because you're sovereign, holy, true. So the question then becomes, when are you going to do something about sin on the earth? When? When are you going to do something? Now, this is not a question about, is Jesus capable? It's a question about when is he going to do it? The same way that John's disciples, John the Baptist went to Jesus when John was in prison and they said, Jesus, are you the one to come or should we be expecting somebody else? Should we be waiting on somebody else or are you the one? And Jesus tells them, no, no, I'm the one. Look at what's happening all around. I'm the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. Go back and tell John. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, miracles are occurring. I'm the one, I'm the guy you've been waiting on. These martyrs around the throne are not saying, Jesus, are you the one or should we still be expecting somebody else? They're just going, hey, when are you going to do this? 
When are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to move to stop evil, to stop sin in this world? When are you going to do something about the injustice of the earth? And listen to Jesus' response. Verse 11 says, Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. He first gives them white robes. That's a symbol of purity and faith and victory. But then he tells them, wait just a little longer because there are still more who have to give their life. There are still more in the sovereign plan of God. There are still more followers of Christ that must give up their life as a testimony and a witness to him and his glory and his sovereignty before he comes back fully and he brings judgment completely against the earth. And so he just says, wait, just wait a little longer. That's not easy for us to do. Uh, God rarely does things in our timing. If you're taking notes, I want to write this down. God rarely does things in our timing, right? You experienced that before? The things that we would want, we want immediately. God doesn't do them in our timing, but waiting on God and his timing is an essential part of our faith journey. It's essential for us as we grow in our faith in Christ to learn what it means to wait on Jesus, to be patient for him to do things in his way and in his time, not to run ahead of God and force God's hand or try to do something in our own power that we would want to bring about God's ways before he's ready to do what he's going to do. We need to learn to be patient and wait on God. This past week, one of my former students posted something on Facebook as she's been learning As she and her husband have gone through an incredibly difficult season in their marriage, I asked her if I could share it with you. She gave me permission to do that, but I just want you to hear her words. It struck home to me. She said, it took three years of praying for God to break and restore our marriage. It took confession, repentance, community, and a whole lot of growth. And the whole time, I thought it was just my husband who needed to be transformed, but boy, was I wrong. There were areas in my life that needed to be surrendered to the Lord. He wanted my unwavering trust You see, I thought if I prayed faithfully enough, God would quickly and easily answer my prayers and things would be perfect. But if God had answered my prayers to fix things in my time rather than his time, we wouldn't have been stretched and grown in ways that we were. There wouldn't be the level of transparency and open communication that we have now. God knows what we are going through. He hears our cries. He's with us in the darkest night and he's already planning a rescue. It may not be what we think it should look like, but it's far beyond what we need. It's far beyond what we need. Such good perspective. And to think about for us, whatever we face in life that we question God's response to, just to know that God will act in justice in his sovereign timing. We have a good God that we can put our lives in his hands and know that he's going to do the right thing at the right time. It may not line up with what we think is right. It may not line up with what we would want to have done in our time, but he will do the right thing in his time. And so as Jesus opens the fifth seal, he promised the martyrs that ultimate judgment and vindication for their death would come, just not yet. So they say, when are you going to do something? He goes, just wait, just wait. There's still more that has to happen. And so next, John describes Jesus opening the sixth seal on the scroll. And the focus shifts again from heaven back to earth. Look at what John says in the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. He says, I watched as he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. 
The heavens receded like a scroll being, removed, uh, being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And so John is going to describe the situation and the circumstances leading up to the end two more times as he again will describe bold judgments and trumpet judgments. But as he does, at the end of each set of judgments, the day of the Lord arrives. And in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament and the Gospels, the day of the Lord is the anticipated time when Jesus will return to earth and set up his kingdom and judge sin and Satan. And so this is a moment that all of Christendom is waiting for and has been waiting for, for Jesus to come and rule and reign. And so when John describes the sixth seal being opened, he does so in a way that's consistent with the day of the Lord being described throughout Scripture. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. All of these things. And as we see these things unfold, it's terrifying. The sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, the stars start to fall out of the sky, the mountains crumble, the uh, islands give way, the heavens recede and roll back like a scroll. It is a violent occurrence when Jesus comes back. And John says, man, this is going to happen. And we don't know, and I'll be the first to admit, I don't know if this is metaphorical or if it's literal, I don't see why it isn't literal. There are judgments that we see in the Exodus account where God blots out the sun. There are judgments in the sky. There are things that take place, earthquakes that are violent, all of these things. I believe that most of this, if not all of this, is literal. And yet the judgment is all-inclusive as John starts to talk about this. The people of the earth respond to these things happening by wishing for and asking for the mountains to fall on them and crush them. They literally look up and go, when Jesus is returning and when all of these things happen and when we see the wrath of the Lamb coming for us, we just want to die. We want to escape this. We want to get out of this because the wrath of the Lamb is coming. And then they ask the question that all of us has to answer. The question is the most important for humans to answer as they read the book of Revelation. When the day of wrath comes, who can withstand it? That's the question we have to wrestle with as humanity. When the day of wrath comes and Jesus returns and he pours out his final judgment on the earth, who can withstand it? And if you're reading along at this point, among the inhabitants of the earth, the answer appears to be no one. They're asking for God, they're asking for the mountains to fall on them and crush them and kill them so they don't have to face God in his wrath. It appears that no one can stand before God in his wrath. And yet, if we keep reading, John's going to tell us the answer Next to this question, when the day of wrath comes, who can withstand it? There is hope. Look at Revelation chapter 7. This brings us to an intermission in the judgments of God. There have been six seals that have been opened so far. There is a seventh seal to come. And yet before it comes, there's this intermission. And John shows us another vision of something that's taking place in heaven. And listen to this. And on earth, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 
144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, anyone want to guess? 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so Revelation chapter 6 ends with this question, who can withstand the day of the Lord? And Revelation 7 opens and John gives us the answer as the four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth to hold back the winds. Side note to anybody who might be a flat earther out there, um, this is not biblical proof of a flat earth theory. Um, that's just not what's going on. When John talks about the four corners of the earth, he's just talking about the whole earth, the entire earth. Okay? When he says the winds are being held back, winds in scripture are often used to represent God's judgment. And so the angel says, before we release this next wind of God's judgment against the earth, let's hold back because I'm going to seal 144,000 who are to follow after Christ during this period of time. So the coming judgments certainly will affect the earth. There's going to be devastation. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be doom. But before those things occur in their full, full, uh, full and totality, fullness and totality, Jesus says, hey, before all that happens, Hold back the judgment. There are going to be those that I need to seal. And so it, God periodically restrains the supernatural to protect his children. The angel with the seal says he's going to put a seal on the forehead of the servants of God. So now in ancient practices, when it came to slave trade, they would put a literal seal on someone's forehead. And they would say, this person belongs now to them. This is their seal. They are owned by that person. By the time we think about the scripture... And God putting his seal of ownership on us, he's putting a seal on the foreheads of those who follow him, representing specific ownership, specific protection of followers of Christ under the authority of God. And so basically as this starts to unfold, the angel says, before anything can happen, we're going to make sure that the people of God know that they are sealed, that they are protected, that they are under God's sovereign protection. And so I want us to see and understand this today because I don't think that this is literally a seal that's going to show up on our foreheads. If you're a fan like I was of the Left Behind books and those kinds of things, I read those in high school and college, loved the books, great books. Uh, but if you read them and remember what happens in that is that there's a period of time in the tribulation where those who become believers in Christ, a, a cross shows up on their forehead and the only people who can see it are other Christians. That's how they identify each other. Oh, you've got a cross on your forehead. We're together, right? And so that's how it unfolds. It's a literal symbol on your forehead. I don't think or I don't know that that's what God is doing here. I think more than anything, this is God's instruction to believers to live out kingdom ways and to be represented that those who know Christ are sealed in him, that our minds are changed, that our hearts are changed, and as a result, our hands, the action of our lives are changed, that we are sealed in him and we're given a call to follow after him. And so here's how that plays out. If you go back, the central teaching of the Israelite people in the Old Testament helps us get a grasp on some of this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 
known as the Shema. This is the central teaching of the Israelite people. Moses wrote this and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I've given you today are, you are, to, are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, when God gave this teaching to his people, I don't know that he meant them to take that literally, but they did. And they went, okay, we're supposed to bind these things on our foreheads, have them on our hands, write them on our doorposts. So guess what they did? They built these little boxes with a string attached to them. They would put the box on their forehead. They would take a little bitty piece of paper, write out the teaching of the Shema, roll up the scroll, and put it in the box. And they would wear it on their forehead so that the Shema was always before them. They would literally wrap things around their hands to symbolize and remind them of the Shema. They would quote it and they would move it around their fingers to quote the Shema. They would literally take and write this on the door frames of their houses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord the God, thy God, the Lord is one. They took literally what Jesus God had said for them to do. I don't know if they were supposed to or not, but they did. Just in the same way that when it comes to us in the New Testament, and when God says, I'm going to send an angel to... to put the seal of God on 144,000 people. I don't know if that's literal or not. But here's what I know from the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament seems to point out and show that the seal of God on our lives is the power of the Holy Spirit coming to take residence in us, that He seals us. I want to show you a couple of passages to help support this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. Paul wrote again in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. We're brought into relationship with God in that manner. But then we still have to answer the question, who are the 144,000 people that John sees? When the angel says, don't do anything until I've sealed the 144,000, who are they? Uh, and so there are a couple ways to think about this. And I'm not going to be too dogmatic in my approach to this. You may disagree with me, but here's, here's kind of how we can approach it. First, the simple way of describing it is there are literally 144,000 Jewish people. He says they're from all of the tribes of, of Israel. So it may very well be that God marks out 144,000 people, puts his seal on them, and has a special purpose and task for them during a tribulation period on earth. Second, there's a way to describe all believers in Christ who are sealed in him. The true Israel of God in the New Testament is referred to all those who know and believe in Jesus. So for us to believe as, as followers of Christ that salvation is not only possible for us, but for anyone, the possibility of this interpretation of saying, is this representative of all people? Here's why I fall in that camp and, and where I'll kind of stand. Uh, the tribes that John describes in these 144,000 are different in some measure from the tribes that are listed in the Old Testament. Let me explain. The first thing that we see is this, that Judah is the head of the tribes. That's not the case in the Old Testament. The reason it becomes the case in the New Testament is because the Messiah, Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. So Judah gets this elevated status now. He's the first in the list. Second, we see that there is a tribe missing. The tribe of Dan 
is missing from the list. That's likely due in the Old Testament because of the idolatry that started to take place within their tribe. Third, we don't see the tribe of Manasseh that's in the list, or excuse me, the tribe of Ephraim that's in the list, possibly because Ephraim opposed Judah in his life. And so they're not part of the list. Then fourth and finally, we see the tribe of Levi is included. Normally they would not have been because from the tribe of Levi came the priests. The rest of the tribes gave to the tribe of Levi, kind of like when we take up an offering to support ministry in our church and the things that we do here, the tribes of Israel would give an offering that would be presented and the tribe of Levi lived off of those things. They were priests before God. Now, in the New Testament, we see, I believe, Levi being included in this list because under the new covenant of salvation in Christ, all believers are called priests. If you're in Christ, you're a priest of God. And so I believe that we're included in this and we're included under Levi. So to me, when we say that there are 144,000 who are going to be sealed, it's just a way for John to represent that all people who know Christ are going to be supernaturally protected by God from his wrath being poured out on the earth during the tribulation. Now, you guys still with me? I know I'm talking a lot. I had a lot of stuff this week and there's a lot to go through. So thanks for hanging on. We're getting close. We're like a third of the way done now. I'm just kidding. I want us to look at this next section of Scripture to kind of see something else to help us understand the 144,000. When you look back at this, you see something that John says, and it goes back and reminds us of the last chapter. In, in chapter 5, when the Lamb was revealed, John said, I was told, there's no one who can open the scroll, and it broke my heart. And then I was told, look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has won. He said, what I heard was the Lion. What I turned and saw was the lamb. Something very similar happens here. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this, after I had been told, I heard the number 144,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and language, standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so just as John had earlier been told, hey, there's a lion that's conquered. Look, and you can see him. And I turned and I saw a lamb. In this instance, he's told, look, there's 144,000 who are going to be sealed. But then he says, but then I turned and what I saw was every person from every nation, tribe, not every person, but people from every nation, tribe, language, tongue, they were all represented at the throne of God. And so for us to think, who are these 144,000? I simply believe that it's followers of Christ that everyone is represented in this, and it's a way to represent all of the totality of Christianity. The people of God know how the salvation of God has come about through Jesus. He died for His people and sealed them forever. And I love this, that when John sees this, he says, and I saw all of those people around the throne of God, and they were just worshiping. And as they worshiped, the angels responded in worship. And here's why that's beautiful. Because the angels do not know the glory of the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins. That's something that's reserved for us. 
Angels have not sinned. Those who stand with God have not sinned and been saved through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But as humanity, as fallen humanity, those of us who have given our lives to Christ, when we stand before Him and when we worship Him because salvation belongs to our God and we fall down on our faces before Him, the angels are just going to stand back and go, oh my gosh, amen, that's right, that's what this whole thing has been about. We've seen this redemptive story unfold through all of eternity, all of creation, and now we're with the people of God who are worshiping God because of what Jesus did for them, and we're going to get on our faces and we're going to worship too. And the angels of heaven will worship in a new way because of the people of God worshiping Jesus at His throne. It's so powerful to see how this all unfolds. Then we get to continue on in Revelation 7. Have you ever been asked a question you had no idea what the answer to that question was? It's that. Listen to this. Verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, Hey, these in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? John's like, come on, bro. I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? Listen to what he says. He answered, Sir, you know. And then the the man angel, the uh, elder answered, answered, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And isn't that a beautiful promise? To think about for us as Christians, that the day is coming when all who come through the tribulation of this life for all who come through the literal tribulation that's to come and the great tribulation to come, John says they had a place before the throne. They were worshiping Jesus. They were under His protection day and night. And there's no longer any danger for them because they're not burned by the sun. They're not scorched by the heat. They're not thirsty anymore. They're not hungry anymore. The Lamb protects them. And I love how John wraps this up. The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Man, lambs don't become shepherds. Lambs need shepherds, unless you're Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the shepherd of His people. He says for eternity, He'll lead us. He'll walk before us. He'll protect us. He'll feed us. He'll clothe us in white. He'll bring us to places of water and refreshing. The Lamb of God is the shepherd of His people. And then He says the last thing is that He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. That may be the best news yet. Other than the fact that we get to be with Jesus, that He's going to wipe away all of our tears, that the memories of the hardships and the painful experiences of this life and the turmoil that we go through here and the loss and the pain and the tragedy, He's a day is coming when the shepherd who loves you will come and He will wipe away your tears. And after that, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more loss, no more crying. Because we'll be in the presence of our Savior forever and forever. That's good news. So as we close this morning, there's one more powerful verse for us to look at. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. John says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven 
for about half an hour. Now, as we've gone through this book and we just saw as the people of God worship at the throne of God, the angels get involved and they worship. And everything we've talked about through the entire book of Revelation up to this point is that in heaven, around the throne, day and night for eternity, worship never, ever stops. There are created beings that have no other point of existence than to stand before God and worship Him. That's why they were created. And yet, John says, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence. And for the first time in eternity, nothing happens in heaven. That as God brings this to an end, that as Jesus pours out His final judgments, heaven for this moment just becomes quiet. And so John just gives us this picture of a silent heaven. And I did some study on that this week to see what is playing out in that. I was thankful for the commentary of J. Scott Duvall. He said this, The Old Testament often associates silence with divine judgment. And such is the case here. When the seventh seal finally opens, the drama intensifies as heaven waits in awe and anticipation for God to intervene. In addition, the silence creates the setting for God to hear the prayers of the saints, which in turn lead into the trumpet judgments, which is what we're going to see play out next. And so we're seeing this wrap up. And here, if you're taking notes again, I like to write something down or following along on the app, just do this. The silence of heaven signifies the end of the first judgments and represents God's intervention in the affairs of the earth to deal with sin. God is on the move to bring about His desired end to this life. And the final thing that we're going to see is the destruction of sin and the destruction of Satan. And the next chapters of the book are just going to unfold that more fully for us. So as we close, I was thinking all week about this. There's so much content here. There's so many things to learn. There's so much to know. There's so much to get right and to get wrong. And then I was thinking about what, what's the application? What do we do with this? It's good just to have knowledge of these things, but, but what should we do with this? And here's where I kind of landed. So much of the, the last here deal with the martyrs of God, those who are around the throne of God, the worship of God, and Here's where I think we should stand. The people of the Lamb are to be an evangelistic people. Christians are being martyred for the Word of God and maintaining their testimony and their faith in God. Christians will continue to be martyred for their faith in God, for the Word of God, and for their testimony to God. And yet that's our call and our place in life. So the goal of Christians in these days and in the end times is to share the plan of God and to highlight how God is using world events, even His judgments, to draw people to Himself for salvation. That's what we have the express privilege to do as followers of Christ. is to take the message of God's salvation to a world who's experiencing the divine judgment of God. And as we go through hardship and turmoil and pain and tribulation, that we're able to say, there's a God in heaven who loves you. He has all of this under control. And He has a desire to be with you if you'll only repent of your sin and accept Jesus as your Savior. That's the call for the of Christ.
to live out our days with the message of God on our lips, with the truth of God and His Word in our hearts, and to call people to repentance, to know Jesus as their Savior. So the last question I'll pose to you is just this. Who do you need to be praying for this week that you need to ask God for an opportunity to share your faith with them? Even if it costs you, that you would be bold to maintain the Word of God, the truth of God, and your witness of God. So let's pray for that boldness this week. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.